Wilder Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we are going to kind of preview this idea of being for the nations. And so when we think about being for the nations, one of the things that you probably think about uh, that I think about often is going on a mission trip. So I thought I would do just a little survey this morning. If you have ever been on a mission trip, would you just raise your hand and kind of wave at me? Lots of hands going up around the room. Many, many people in this room have been on a mission trip. And that is consistent with our first service. And I'm, I'm guessing that will be consistent with our third service as well. But I want you to think back to the very first mission trip you ever went on. Why did you go? For some of you, your story for why you went on a mission trip was because your parents said you needed to go so that you knew how good you had it back home. Or it was just some form of tourism to see another culture. But friends, when we think about the the purpose of a mission trip or the purpose of global missions, from a Christian perspective, it's not ultimately about us. It's ultimately about a world that is born and desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ so that they might be reconciled to God. And God in His grace has given us the privilege of taking that message to the world. Just as someone took the message to Ahmad, so also Ahmad is taking the message to the Middle East and God wants to involve you and I in that same process. But I want us to realize that there was a time in the history of the church when no one had been on a mission trip. Even after Jesus had died on the cross and rose from the grave and given a great commission to his followers, there was a time about 10 years long where no Christian went on an international mission trip. The gospel stayed right where it was until eventually it launched to the world. This morning we're going to talk about the launch of the gospel to the world But in order for us to set that up, I want to give you an illustration that you may or may not find helpful. But it's an illustration from NASA. Realize that NASA, the the organization in America that was organizing, sending people into space, had a headquarters in Houston. And from HQ in Houston, they solved many problems. See what I did there? Houston, they have a problem. Anyway, okay, just making sure you're still awake. Um, they, They solved many problems, and they built many rockets, and they trained many astronauts. But for strategic reasons, they they never launched a rocket from Houston. Instead, they launched their rockets where? In Florida, in Cape Canaveral. For strategic reasons, the rockets launched from that location. Now, friends, I I want to, to use that as a parallel for us to understand what happened in the first church see, Jesus established and drew up the plans and trained the disciples in Jerusalem and in Galilee and in the land of Israel. But the rocket to the world didn't launch from there. It launched from a different church. It launched from a non-Jewish Gentile church. It launched not from Jerusalem in the shadow of the temple, but it launched from the city of Antioch. And this morning, friends, we're going to look at the launch of the rocket of the gospel that went from Antioch to the world so that you and I might understand a little bit more about how it connects to us in the mission of the church right here 
in Norman, Oklahoma. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and, and turn in it. We're going to be talking here about the church that launched from Antioch, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If you've got a Bible, take it and turn there. I want to read these verses for us, and then we will go back and make some observations and connect that truth to our lives. Acts chapter 13 goes this way. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now friends, when we see these verses, we see the launch of the first mission trip. We know it as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. But we're going to see some things in here that are instructive for us when we think about the mission of the church here today. So what are those things that we need to see? Well, the first thing that we see is we see that there was a church in Antioch. We see that there was a church in Antioch. Now, this is something that is, is interesting because, as we recall, that the church began down in Jerusalem. You see, it was inside of the confines of Palestine or, or Israel where Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem. He, he grew up in those dusty streets. He grew up in the shadow of the temple. He did his ministry in Galilee and around the city of Jerusalem. He called his disciples there. He trained them there. He died on the cross there, and he rose from the grave there. He preached all his sermons there. See, the church began right there in Israel. But Jesus' intention was never for the church to stay in Israel. It was always for this message of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And we see this in the time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. He kept talking to the disciples about the mission that he had for them. He said things like in Acts 1.8, You will receive power, Jesus said to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. It's a promise. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were, in all Judea, that was the area around where they were, in Samaria, that was the area of disliked people that lived very close to where they were. And then ultimately, to the very end of the earth. Jesus made it clear that though the church movement began in Israel, it was not to stay there. It was to go to the end of the earth. He also made it clear when he gathered them on a mountaintop in Galilee. And he said, go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all the nations. You see, it was Jesus' intention from the start that the gospel would go to the end of the earth. And yet, after Jesus plants the church, 10 years go by and no one leaves the area. 10 years go by and the church stays very close and around the city of Jerusalem. So what happened next? Well, somehow, some way, by the time we get to Acts 13.1, there was a church in Antioch. Now, where is Antioch? Antioch is a church that existed outside the Israel bubble. It was 
a city up here north of Israel, and it was the capital of the region of Syria inside the Roman Empire. Somehow, by Acts 13, the gospel is up in in Antioch, and there is a, a church that has been planted there. So how did the gospel get to Syria? Well, it happened by way of persecution. See, in the book of Acts, we find that Stephen was martyred for his faith. You might be familiar with that story because Stephen was proclaiming the truth of Jesus. A crowd got angry and they picked up rocks and they threw them at Stephen until he died and gave his life as a martyr for the Christian faith. After Stephen's death, the church that had been stuck in Israel begins to migrate elsewhere to avoid the persecution And driven by that persecution, really driven by a sovereign God who kind of grabbed both sides of the sheet of the bed of Israel and shook it so that they would go and move towards the edges, the disciples of Jesus take the gospel out. And some of those disciples take the gospel up to the region of Syria and to the city of Antioch. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because Antioch was a significant city. It was the capital of the region of Syria. There were about a half a million people that lived in the the city of Antioch in the first century. It was a place that existed on a, a major road and with major caravans for travel and trade running through it. It was no insignificant place. And so it's not a surprise that when the Christians leave Israel and they move north that they would walk into Antioch. But what is a surprise was that when they got there, they did not preach the gospel to Jewish people alone, but they preached the gospel in Antioch to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And the book of Acts in chapter 11 lets us know that many of those Gentiles believed in Jesus Christ. And so the church that is formed in Antioch is really the first expression of a church that was primarily Gentile in nature. Well, when the disciples hear that there's a church in Antioch down in Jerusalem. They, they send one of their best and brightest to go check out what's going on. They sent Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, the, the one who sold a, a parcel of land in Acts 4 and gave it to the needs of the poor in the early church in Jerusalem? The, the Barnabas who goes and, and, and finds Saul after his conversion and helps assimilate him into the Christian community and helps him escape and get back to the city of Tarsus? That same Barnabas was ministering in Jerusalem, but when the church hears of what's going on in Antioch, they send Barnabas up there to check it out. And Barnabas shows up and he sees these Gentiles who believe in Jesus and who have the Holy Spirit inside of them and who are having this amazing church experience. And Barnabas goes, this is awesome. We've got to do something with this. And so he goes and he gets his friend Saul that for 10 years had been living in the city of Tarsus, wondering what the next step would be for his life. And he says, hey, Saul, it's time. Let's go, man. There's a church down in Antioch and we've got work to do. And so Barnabas and Saul show up to help disciple and grow the church in Antioch. And so there is a church in Antioch. Now, that takes us to our next thing we need to see. And that is, we need to see the leaders of the church in Antioch. We need to see the leaders of the church in Antioch. Now, the leaders of the church in Antioch, there were at least two categories of those leaders. And we see this in verse 1. There were those who were prophets and there were those who were teachers. Now, what are these titles? What is their purpose? 
Well, when we see the word prophet, we need to know that in the first century, in the foundational time of the church, before the New Testament was written and given, there was a need for those who could clarify the will of God and at times could speak it, even speak things into existence that hadn't happened yet. There was this prophetic role, similar to the prophetic role in the Old Testament, in the foundational time of the early church, there were prophets that ministered inside of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 lets us know that alongside Jesus as the cornerstone in the foundation of the church, there were the apostles, that's Peter and the boys, but there was also prophets, and some of those prophets were ministering in this church in Antioch. But not only are there some prophets, but there were also teachers. Teachers were those who could open God's word and read it and explain it so that people could understand it. And so in this church in Antioch, there are both prophets and there are teachers. Well, who were these prophets and teachers in that church? Well, the first we've already talked a little bit about, it was this guy, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was ministering in that city. Second, we see a man by the name of Simeon, who was also called Niger. Now, Simeon is a Jewish name. But Niger probably referred to the color of his skin. Many scholars believe that he was probably had black skin. He was from sub-Saharan Africa, maybe a Jewish proselyte at some point prior in his life. But here he finds himself in Antioch. He trusts Christ, and he finds himself on a leadership team at the church in Antioch. So Barnabas was there, and Simeon was there. Also, Lucius was there. Now, Lucius was from a place called Cyrene. Another famous Bible person from Cyrene was who? Simon of Cyrene, who helped carry the cross of Christ. We learn about him in the book of Luke. From that same city, which is in North Africa, was a man named Lucius, who lived in Antioch and became a leader in the church there. So we have somebody from sub-Saharan Africa, Barnabas from Crete, Lucius from Cyrene. Also, a man by the name of Manian was there. Well, who was Manian? Well, he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This phrase, lifelong friend, probably is not strong enough. Famous royal people in ancient times would basically adopt other people their age and gender to be their friends, and they would be raised inside of the household of somebody who would have been known as a king. And so Herod The Tetrarch, this is the same Herod who would behead John the Baptist, the same Herod that would stand trial over Jesus alongside Pontius Pilate at the crucifixion of Christ. This same Herod had some friends that grew up in his household, one of which was this guy named Manian. Manian, after that time, makes his way to Antioch, places his faith and trust in Christ, and becomes a leader in the church there. And then... There's this guy named Saul. And who's Saul? We know him as Paul. The man that was a party to the murder of Stephen, who came to Christ through a supernatural experience on Damascus Road, whose life was radically changed and who ultimately would be the vessel that God uses to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That same Saul was serving in the church in Antioch. Because Barnabas went and got him and brought him over. Now, when we see this this big group, a couple of things we need to see. 
The first thing we need to see is something in the grammar that indicates to us something about these guys. The first thing we need to see is that Barnabas being listed first grammatically would let us know that he had a a role of prominence in the church. In our parlance, let's say that he was the senior pastor. Now, the way that the, the grammar is put together also lets us know that the first several names in this list most likely were prophets, and the last couple of names in this list were probably teachers. That means that Barnabas was the senior pastor and the Apostle Paul was the teaching pastor. Just a couple of lightweights leading this church, right? But here they are, they're leading this church in Antioch. But a second thing we need to see is not just these famous people who were leading there. We need to see and we need to think about the diversity of the group that was leading the church in Antioch. I mean, these folks were from different countries. These folks were from different cultures. These folks had different backgrounds. They looked different. They talked different. They had different experiences. They probably had different opinions. They cheered for different sports teams. Whatever it was, there were differences in all of that stuff among these guys. And yet they found a remarkable unity so that they might lead the same entity, the church of Jesus Christ in Antioch. Now, how is that even possible, right? We, we live in a world that fractures and splits over all kinds of things, and that's not unique to us. That's, that's just human, right? How do people with that much diversity connect together? Well, friends, they understood that their connection was not on the basis of their language or their backgrounds or their parentage or their opinions, but their connection was ultimately around the person of Jesus Christ. William Barclay says this, he says, There in that little band there is exemplified the unifying influence of Christianity. Men from many lands and many backgrounds had discovered the secret of togetherness because they had discovered the secret of Christ. It was Jesus and Jesus alone that united them together. And friends, this is no accident. Jesus intended for his church to become united. Not Everybody thinking the same thing about everything, but united in him. Upon him, we can agree. We agree that he is the son of God. We lift his name high. We worship him. That's why we sing together. That's why we read the same words together. It's an expression of our understanding that Jesus is preeminent. He is the exalted one in this assembly. He is the one who unites us. And it was the same for that church. This is how Jesus designed it. Jesus even prayed for this. Do you realize that? On the night before Jesus went to the cross, he prays for his disciples, but not only his disciples in that day, but his disciples in every day, including you and I, when he says this, he says to his Father in heaven, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples in the first century, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, those in Antioch and those in Norman, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Friends, that kind of unity is desirable for us today, is it not? We long to be in a place that doesn't just tear each other apart. We long to be in a place where there is some sense of unity and and purpose together. But I want us to see something really important in this prayer. 
I want us to see that, that, that Jesus did not create unity in his church just so that we might have a little more peace in our gatherings. But Jesus created unity in his church for what purpose? We've already seen it hinted at in his prayer, but how does he end that prayer? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. See, when the church comes together united, it is so that we can be united in mission as we leave this place to go and tell others about Christ. We may disagree on lots of things, but friends, I believe we agree that there's a world in need of a Savior. Right? I mean, this is, this is what unites the church. If we look at each other, we can find all kinds of things to pick on. But when we get our eyes up and looking out, we have an amazing unity in mission and in purpose. I think about the first mission trip that I went on. I, I went to uh, Russia in 1995. I went to a city. We were ministering on a campus. The wall had just come down, and we're, we're telling people about Jesus. And, and while we were there, there was, there was a church in that town that was a church that, honestly, if, if that church was in Norman, I would have never attended it. You know, they, they don't sing the music I like or whatever, right? Well, all the petty things and all the things that we find differences about. I, I would never have attended that church here. But you know what I did there? I attended. You know what I did there? I invited everybody I met on campus, go with us there. Why? Because when our eyes are up and our eyes are out, we share that purpose and that mission. And some of the things that we think are so important become less important. So this diverse set of leaders at the church in Antioch unite around Jesus. And they unite in a mission of taking the gospel to the world. So, friends, what is that mission of the church in Antioch? And what can we learn from it? Well, we see that as they are gathering this group of leaders and this congregation in Antioch, they, they gather and, and they're, they're worshiping. They're, they're, they're praising God. They're having communion. They're, they're looking into the scriptures together. They're praying for one another. That's what's happening in their assembly. And as they are gathered and as they are worshiping, the Holy Spirit says something. Now, how did that happen? How did the Holy Spirit say something? Did they hear an audible voice? Honestly, friends, we have no idea. We just know that he did it. Most likely, the Holy Spirit urged one of the leaders of the church to offer forth what they understood to be the direction that God was taking them. And then the other leaders in the church heard that, prayed about it, and felt like it was consistent with what was to happen. But somehow the Holy Spirit gets a message to the church in Antioch, and he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, Let's just think about this for a moment. What is that message in a way that we could relate to? The Holy Spirit gets a message that says, your senior pastor and your teaching pastor are, need to get out of here. That's the message that comes to the church in Antioch. Now, when I say that, there are some of you that are probably going, wait a minute, what's going to happen here? When we get together as a church family and we, 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 we worship and we, we pray and we seek the Lord, is what happens at the end of that time, somebody just gets an all-expense-paid trip away from here, never to return. Is, is that what happens among the godly? Well, that's not exactly what happened here. What happened here fits in a much bigger context. 
And so we need to remember something about the call of Barnabas and Saul. The first thing we need to remember is that this call for them to go and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth was something that was consistent with their personal calling. From the time that that, that Paul became a follower of Jesus, there was a prophecy given by Ananias at that time from God to him saying that you will take the gospel and be a light to the Gentiles. Paul would tell his story in Acts 22, 21, and he would say that when he escaped to Tarsus, that call was reaffirmed by Jesus himself laying upon Paul that he would be a light to the Gentiles. And when they tell their story in Acts 13, 47, Paul uses the plural of us. So somehow in their personal lives and in their personal times with God and in their ministry, God had been setting aside and preparing Barnabas and Saul for this mission. And they had probably shared that intention with the church in Antioch so that they knew that this was the the, the destination, but they might have been reluctant to let him go, right? They they are called to go, but we want to keep them until this moment. In Acts 13, when they released them to the work of the Lord, it was something that God had been preparing Paul and Barnabas for from the start. But a second thing that it's important for us to see is this is consistent with Jesus' standing order. Remember, we saw earlier, Jesus gave the Great Commission. He told them that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. He said that they would be making disciples of all nations and that that would happen to the end of the age. The age wasn't over yet. The order still stood. And so the direction of Christ to the church was clear. So this was not something that was just very flippant from the leadership saying, well, the Spirit told us that you need to do X. It was something that was consistent with their personal calling. It was something that was consistent with the standing order of Christ. And yet it's still remarkable that the church in Antioch did this. They were keeping in step with the Spirit. The Spirit of God was leading Spirit of God was leading this church in a direction, and they were going to follow. Now, what happened after this message came? Well, it says they fasted and they prayed. They wanted to do the math, double check it, dot the I's, cross the T's. Lord, do we really hear you right? You want us to send our beloved senior pastor and our hotshot young teaching pastor. You really want us to send them to the nations. And so they pray and they fast on that. And God confirms that is indeed what is to happen next. And so what do they do? They lay hands on them. Who's the they? I think it was the whole church. The whole church gathered around them. Imagine the scene. The whole church wasn't going to change their geography, but two of them would be representatives to change their geography for them so that that church in Antioch in its very early days would participate in the Great Commission taking the gospel to the world. They all would go through the representation of Paul and Barnabas. That's what's happening here. So they lay hands on them, they pray for them, and then they sent them out. That means they they released them and they resourced them. They let them loose of the responsibilities of the church in Antioch. Manian and the boys said, we got it, guys, we got it. You go. God is going to be with us here. You go and take the gospel to places that need it. They prayed for them. They resourced them. They, they sent them out. Now, with all of this, we need to see a couple of different principles. The first principle that we need to see is this, that we also should pray and fast for mission. We also should pray and fast for mission. Prayer, that's somewhat obvious, right? Prayer is talking to God. 
One of the ways that you and I can be a part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission is that we can spend time on our knees, not just praying for us or for those that we know, but also praying for places around the world that we don't know yet, but we know need the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you watch the news and you hear of some place that is torn apart by division and war, you pray that the gospel goes there. When we gather as a church, as we did even earlier in this service, may we spend time praying for the Lord to work. We're, we're used to this idea of prayer. But the second thing that we see there is, is fasting. What, what, is it, what is this fasting all about? Well, fasting means that we would forego a meal. It's a negative action, but it creates a positive opportunity. By taking away a meal, you create more time and space to pray more, to worship more. The church in Antioch spent time away from food on occasion, so that they might focus more time and energy on praying for the mission. We've got an opportunity to do that as a church family. I'll tell you about it a little more later, but it's just a, a part of what it looks like for us to follow Christ and to be used by Him in the Great Commission. We ought to be praying and fasting for the mission. The second thing that we might think about as a principle from this section is that we are called to send our best to the mission. You know, when the word came in that they were to send someone, think of who they sent. Their senior pastor, whose nickname was the son of encouragement and was a prophet. That'd be a hard guy to let go. A son of encouragement as your senior pastor, who's prophetic in his gifting. And yet they sent him the best because the, the, the need was so great. Who else did they send? They sent the Apostle Paul, the guy that would write half of our New Testament. He was teaching them every Sunday. And yet there he goes. They sent their best to the field. Not just those that couldn't cut it here. They sent their best. Why? Because the mission was that important. Friends, downstairs at Wildwood... Sometime, it could be today, it could be in a future day, walk down the hallway downstairs. You'll see a bunch of pictures on the wall of different missionaries that Wildwood has the privilege of partnering with. Almost without exception, all of those people have sat where you sit on a Sunday. And we have the privilege of partnering with them now to send the gospel someplace else. At some point, we were able to lay hands on them as a church And they are now our representatives in fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. Friends, when I walk down that hallway, I just, I I, I get a little emotional. I got to be honest with you. It is such a blessing to be a part of a church that is connected to what God is doing, not just here within these walls, but in our city. And not just in our city, but in the world. When I see those pictures, I see our best and our brightest taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth privilege as a church to be a part of something like that. So two principles that we see here. Now, how do we apply this? I want to apply this for us in in three areas. Three areas. The first application for us is simply that we would praise God. Praise God. You realize that humanity, apart from what Jesus has done, is separated from God forever. But because of what Jesus has done, dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead, it is possible for sinful people to be forgiven. And God knows that. 
And he has mobilized a rocket to launch from places like Norman, Oklahoma, to go to the world so that everyone might hear of the good news and have a chance to repent and believe. Take a moment and just praise God that he has a plan, and that plan involves us. Second application. Pray about that plan and see how we can be a part of it. The church in Antioch is is praying and fasting about the mission. May we also gather and pray and fast about the mission. You know, on October 28th, as a part of our For the Nations Week, we're going to have a, an all-church prayer meeting right here in this room at, at 6.30 p.m. We would love to have you here. I, I, I hope and pray this room is not large enough for all who will gather on that night for us to pray as a church family. And as we gather... We're going to be laying hands on some of Wildwood's folks who are going to the mission field. We get to actually live out what we are seeing in these verses. So come and be a part of that as we pray for the mission. And and I would challenge you this way too. Consider if the Lord would have you skip dinner that night just to create the extra space in your life and schedule and remind you of the importance of the mission as we gather and as we pray for the mission. The 28th. At 6.30, there's details in your bulletin. And the third application I would see is this. Release and resource our best to the world. You know, during our For the Nations week, from the 23rd through the 31st, we're going to be welcoming back a number of our best and brightest that we have sent to the world. And we're going to hear stories of how God has worked through them. And we're going to celebrate because we as a church have been a part of those things. Friends, consider how your best and brightest might be involved in this mission. And as we think about that, and as you make plans to participate with us during that For the Nations week, we wanted to share with you just a little bit more of how God is using Wildwood to that end already. So join me in watching this. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. God's heart for reaching all the nations is also revealed throughout the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. His heart for the world first shows up in the beginning, where in Genesis, God promises all peoples on the earth will be blessed. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, you see the same heart to reach the world. In Isaiah, God tells his people, I will also make you a light that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In Psalms, he exhorts his followers to Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. In the New Testament, the risen Jesus reminds his disciples of their worldwide mission. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And finally, Revelation paints the picture of God's throne when the end comes, and around it stands a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Scripture is clear. The good news is meant for all people. However, even 2,000 years after Jesus' departure, this vision is far from complete. Of the world's 17,000 people groups, it is estimated 42% still remain unreached. That means of the nearly 8 billion people in the world, Over 3 billion have no personal access to the gospel through a follower of Christ. 
There is something called the 1040 window. Within this area, nine out of every 10 people are unreached. Muslim people make up a quarter of the unreached world. That leaves over 1 billion people in darkness. One in 10 people live in the Hindu regions. They represent 1,700 people groups with a population of more than 840 million. Reaching these groups has been slow. In the decade leading up to 2015, there was only a 1% increase in reaching lost people groups. If this rate persists, it will take approximately 420 more years to reach all nations. So, what is Wildwood doing to help fulfill the Great Commission? Wildwood is committed to following Jesus and being for the nations. We have a global outreach team made primarily of volunteers who oversee our mission effort. Wildwood partners with individuals and other organizations to reach the world with the gospel. This includes 24 ministries and 41 individuals. 18 of which are working among unreached people. And half are focused on unreached Muslim groups. We talked about the 1040 window where most unreached people live. But did you know more than 40% of our missionaries work in or very near this window? Another important effort is helping develop worldwide church leaders. That's why Wildwood teams up with international leadership training schools in Jordan, Spain, and Brazil. You may know some of what you give to Wildwood goes to global outreach. But did you know our church dedicates over $200,000 annually to worldwide missions? But impacting the world for Christ goes beyond just financial giving. There are many ways for you at Wildwood to engage with the nations. We encourage you to come and see, find out more, and travel with us in following Jesus to reach the world. So friends, consider that your invitation to join us over the next couple of weeks as we are going to be learning more about how we are for the nations as a church family. We'd love to have you especially join us on Saturday night for that kickoff event this coming Saturday. And that event starts at 630. If you want to bring your kids, there's a program for your kids, but we would need you to register for that. So you can go to our website at wildwoodchurch.org slash nations 2021 and let us know of your interest in coming that evening and we will be ready for you. We're excited for the week ahead. We're thankful that you are with us today. Know that you are dismissed now. Let's follow Jesus together to the glory of God.